We're in this series of sermons walking through the Gospel according to Luke. And today we step into this next passage. And this passage that we're about to step into is freighted with theological content. There is so much depth we could mine in this passage. And yet we're going to, even as we like, we just plumb the depth and we're going to at least try to do some good theological work in the passage Right in plain sight, there is something else sitting in this passage, just a set of verses that has something to say to you and me right now. And I cannot wait. It's, it's, it's just this moment of discovery as I was working and tilling the ground on this passage. This aha moment. I can't wait to share. But we got to till some of the theological ground. So we're going to do something we tip, we're going to do something a little different than we typically do. We're actually going to walk through the passage, verse one through twenty-two, chapter three, verse one through twenty-two. So we're in Luke three, one to verse twenty-two, verse one through twenty-two. And what we're going to do is we're going to actually pull out along the way the, the just the the heavy theological verses, and we're just going to begin to unpack them because they're going to walk us through the passage. But then we're going to see what's sitting right there in plain sight. That's going to say something to you and me today. We're going to begin verse 3. So we're in Luke 3, verse 3. We're going to pick up with verse 3 because here we're going to pick up with the public ministry of John the Baptist. And we want to just hit the ground running here, understanding the theological meat that's in this passage. Verse 3, we read, he, that's John the Baptist, went into all the country around the Jordan, that's the Jordan River, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of uh, the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him, every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low, the crooked road shall become straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children from Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will, cut that will be cut down and thrown into the fire. We'll stop right there. There's a lot going on in those verses. And sometimes I think when we deal with theological meat, sometimes it feels like theology is way out there. It's just, it can be seem very abstract because we don't typically talk like this in ordinary life, do we? But there's so much here. I think just right in these verses you see that we're dealing with a baptism of repentance. We're dealing with a prophecy from long ago. And we're dealing with this people's relationship to their ancestral patriarch, Abraham. I mean, all of that's right here in these verses. So we just begin to un just peel back the layers. We just want to first note what's going on with the baptism. I mean, I know, I, I know about baptism. You know about that. You've heard of baptism. But this is, this is John the Baptist's baptism. And we right out of the gate, we need to understand there's a difference between Christian baptism and the baptism of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is baptizing towards repentance. Christian baptism is linked to being in Christ. So 
Christian baptism is a seal. It is connecting a person into the life of Jesus. And at this point in the story, Jesus has not died and come back to life. There is no Christian baptism. Christ has not been risen and ascended sitting at the right hand of the Father. There has been no Holy Spirit given into the world, sent into the world. So, so this Christian baptism is, is, is this moment, this sign of this seal of one's relationship to Christ. It gets first proclaimed when that first sermon is preached on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem after Christ has risen and ascended into heaven. So what is this baptism of repentance? One scholar says it this way. Make sure you want to kind of zero in on this. John's baptism was not about ritual purity. So this is not just a matter of you being pure before God. But it's about moral and spiritual renewal. It was a baptism which followed repentance and was a sign of it. John called, John called people to turn away from their sins. And the acceptance of his baptism was a sign that they had done this. So John comes preaching declaring that people should be baptized. And the reason they are to be baptized is because there's some type of renewal happening in their life. They're going to turn from sin and a sign that they have turned from sin coming to God, which saying forgiveness of sins, that's another way of declaring that. Well, that baptism was a sign. It represented the, a life turning from sin to God. But it was not connected to being linked to the life of Christ. So this is not Christian baptism. But it is a command being declared by God through John the Baptist. And here a new command has come to the people to be baptized as a sign of their repentance, turning from their sin and to God. And this whole message doesn't come in a vacuum. It is being declared because long ago, God promised He would send someone. He would send someone to save His people. That person will be called the Anointed One. John the Baptist shows up and he is the herald. He is the forerunner of this promised one who would come. And so as Luke writes the story, he wants us to know that those those needy promises back in the Old Testament that God would send someone to save His people, John the Baptist, is that someone who would declare the coming of the Messiah? And so Luke quotes here Isaiah 40. Now something interesting happening here is that Matthew and Mark, those other two Gospels, they quote also Isaiah 40 to, to, to tell us that John the Baptist is fulfilling Filling that long ago prophecy that God would send someone to herald the Messiah. But Matthew and Mark don't quote as much as Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5 as Luke does. Luke quotes more than Matthew and Mark. And that's significant because a theme running through the gospel according to Luke is that this salvation that's coming into the world, that this anointing was going to bring, it's not just for the Jews. It's going to be for all people. 
So when Luke wants to to make sure we understand John the Baptist is the herald, the forerunner of this anointed one, he makes sure to note for us that piece of the prophecy that in verse 6, all people will see God's salvation. How many people? All people. Now, what the point here for Isaiah, the theological point, is that this isn't just for the Jews, it's going to be for the Gentiles, so it's every kind of person will now have salvation made available. You see that right there, verse 6. And so, so that is a significant point that's going to play out into the gospel, but you and I have already seen it. You do remember that when Jesus was born, his parents take him to the temple, and there's this guy, there's this, we don't know how old he is, but there's a guy, and he, he, he holds Jesus in his arms, and he says something very important about this Jesus. Take a look. We'll just pick this up. Luke 2, verse 38 through 32. Simeon took him, that's Jesus, in his arms and praised God, saying, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. There, Simeon's quoting Isaiah 42. So the, the key point is Jesus is coming into the world to save every kind of person. It's not just for the Jew, it's for the non-Jew. This is a point Luke's going to just weave into the rest of the way he tells the story. We're going to see non-Jews coming to Jesus and having more faith than those that are from Israel. We're going to be watching that happen as we walk through the Gospel. All of it being, all of it being tipped off right here in verse 6 as Luke quotes more of Isaiah 40 than Matthew and Mark. Now, this is a significant point because you'll notice that what comes right after that is John the Baptist has to make his own theological point in front of the crowd because there are many that have come to him, these being Jews, and they are saying that they are saved. They are God's special people, not because of anything that's happening in their heart, but because they have Abraham as their father. Their parents went to church, so that's good enough for them. Right? It's that idea that I get to just ride the coattails of my parents' faith or my grandparents' faith. John the Baptist says, you don't get, you don't, you, that's not how this works. You don't get to ride the coattails of Abraham. God will raise up people. He'll raise up stones. Now, that just seems a bit off, doesn't it? I mean, I just, I don't talk like that. I don't, do you talk like that? I don't talk like that. That, that, that's why the theology here is so meaty. Because when John describes and d- declares that God will raise up stones, he's going to raise up people beyond Israel. He's going to raise up non-Jews as well as Jews. This is a lot of theology. We have baptism. We have prophecy. We have the relationship between the Jews and their ancestral patriarch Abraham. All of it right there in those verses. If you're like me, I just typically don't walk around thinking like this. I mean, I'm thinking about the Bills playing the Jets. Like, that's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about the Bucks losing again. Like, that would be wonderful if that would happen again. Like, that's what I'm thinking about. I don't, I don't typically carry this language in my mind or speech. But that's not a problem with the Bible. That's a problem with my mind. Okay? Not to say anything against any NFL team. Minus the Bucks. I'm the one that gets the microphone. I, this is, these are the great moments, right? Okay. All right. Let's, let's drop. I want to drop now into the passage. I want to pick up another key, key um, piece of the theological meat that, that Luke's put in the passage. Verse 15. People were waiting, 
expectantly. And they were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them and said, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. Uh, powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. There's so much here. But let's just pick out, I think, the one big theological nugget that's just sitting there, right, just glaring. This anointed one's going to come into the world. He will not just baptize with water. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Volumes have been written trying to understand what that means. Most commentators believe John is pointing forward to the day when Jesus, resurrected and ascended, will send his spirit into the world and actually send his spirit into his people. Here's one way one commentator says it this way. John could put repented people in water. Only one who was God could put people in the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit in people. The day's coming when God's going to put His Spirit not on His people, in His people. And literally that Spirit will be the one who seals and affirms. He's the solid down payment of your eternal reward. That Holy Spirit will sanctify a people. And what I think we have have happening here is John the Baptist, a man who would have known his Old Testament, he's hyperlinking back to that great promise from Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, God made this promise through the prophet Ezekiel. Here it is. We're going to read it out of the English Standard Version. I will give you, God says, a new heart and a new spirit will be put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God made a promise long ago. I'm going to do this. I'm giving you my spirit. Another way that you might say that is he will baptize you in the spirit. And every believer in Christ is baptized in the spirit. Now, there's a lot going on there, and we could unpack that even more because there are some traditions that really begin to explore the nature of that baptism of the Spirit and how that expresses itself in the life of a believer. But right now, at base level, we're dealing with that one coming will give His Spirit and put it in His people, and His people will be transformed. Now, then you've got that fire piece here. What is the fire? What do we got? I mean, what's, what's the baptism of fire? There really are two options, and, and, and I'm not going to land the plane on this. Because the way the Greek, the way Luke has put the Greek together, the original language together, it would appear that fire and, and Holy Spirit actually go together. And so there are really two options here. Fire could mean a coming judgment. Like, literally, the anointed one's coming into the world. He's going to give the Spirit to some people, but those that do not believe, there will be wrath. And we do read in verse 17 that he is holding a winnowing fork. He's going he's gonna to weed out people. Those who believe and don't believe. The shaft and the weed. Like that's, that's coming from the anointed one. Or fire is referring to the purification that the Holy Spirit will bring into a believer's life. That we will be purified like gold and silver. You know, that that fire will actually just melt away the impurities of the heart. So it could be go either way there. But man, there's so much right there just theology. One more passage. And man, this one's chock full. But we'll try to move through it pretty quick. 
So with all that said about John coming, declaring this message, uh, this baptism of repentance, saying something about Abraham, this, this John who is not the Messiah, who says, hey, there's someone greater than me coming. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire. In the middle, with all that said, guess who shows up? Jesus shows up. Verse 21, 22. When all the people were being baptized, I just want you just going to note, just because we're going to come back. Luke makes sure to mention here that what's about to happen happens when all the people were being baptized. A lot of people being baptized. And then this happens. Jesus was baptized too. Jesus was baptized too. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Let's just unpack just a few things that are coming, that are going on right here. Number one, you've got the Trinity on display right here. Now, the Bible never fully explains how the Trinity works. That is, three persons, one God. It just doesn't, the Bible just does not give us a two-sentence summary of how all of that exists in eternity. But what we do see is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit showing up moving and working, three persons, one God. And it's right here, Holy Spirit. So this is God the Father speaking to the Son. You have God the Son being baptized, God the Spirit descending on God the Son. The Trinity's right there, okay? The second point we want to make mention of is, like we talked about last week, in this moment, Jesus is having a fuller revelation of his relationship with God the Father. Remember, the doctrine of the Incarnation is that Jesus is fully human, fully God. But part of being fully human is he was limited in his mind. And to understand who he was, God the Father is revealing this to him. doesn't make him any less God, but that's part of what it meant to be fully human. And so in this moment, there's a declaration and Jesus understands in a way he probably has not yet that now the Father is fully pleased with his life up to this point and this sets in motion the public ministry of Jesus. But again, it's a a continual unpacking of this relationship between Father and Son right here in this moment. So I just want to understand there's something about the doctrine of the Incarnation we could really, we could continue to pull out of that, those, just those two verses. And then there's this other point. A significant point for us. When did Jesus get baptized? When all the other people were getting baptized. Now, in Matthew, we know that Jesus also said, I have to do this to fulfill all righteousness. But you see the problem, potentially, with Jesus getting baptized. Who who are the people getting baptized? Sinners. Sinners turning from their sin and being baptized. Well, you know what Jesus doesn't have? Sin. He's not doing it to turn from sin. He's doing it so that he will be in solidarity with all those sinners. You know what this is points us towards? It points us towards the cross where Jesus became, he who knew no sin became sin. So in his baptism, he is identifying with us already in his baptism. And guess who had given the command to John the Baptist to declare baptism? God the Father gave that command. And Jesus will follow every command of the Father. And so he fulfills all righteousness. That's, that's sitting right there in those verses. One commentator says it this way. Just like the way he said it, so let's read it. And then i got to show you what's been sitting in plain sight in 
this whole passage. Here's what he says about Jesus being baptized. Jesus did not have to be baptized for his own sins. Rather, he was identifying with sinners in their need of forgiveness. This was an act of solidarity. Jesus was taking the place of sinners. So already at the beginning of his public ministry, we are reminded of the ancient prophecy. That's Isaiah 53, 12. That he would be numbered among the transgressors. Already he's identifying with us in his humanity. That's a lot of theology. That's, I mean, that, I don't know about you, but let me say it again. Sometimes theological meat can, can be so hard to chew because I just don't walk around thinking like this. I, I, I want to think more like this. I want my mind to be framed by the Scriptures and shaped by the Bible. But you've got to deal with theology. You've got to deal with the teachings of Scripture. Christianity is not just a matter of how you feel about God. It actually says something true about God. There are actual, uh, there are actual statements of reality built into Christianity. We've got to deal with the theology. But in the middle of all the theology, that can sometimes feel so abstract, just way out there in the distance, Luke has woven into this passage real life stuff. I mean, concrete stuff. Gritty, earthy stuff. He doesn't leave the passage out there among the clouds, somewhere abstract, something we call theological. This whole passage gets on the ground right where we live. He actually begins the passage right there on earth. Not in the clouds, right on earth. Look at verse 1. Look at verse 1. Such an important point to make here. Verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. So we're going to start back where we began. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, brother Philip, tetrarch of Eurydia, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priests of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, that word of God is a deeply theological word. But when did it come? It came when real people were ruling in real places in real time. Sometimes we have this idea that God only moves in the burning bush or it's somewhere out there. Or He lives somewhere up in the sky. Now, God is beyond time and space, but God always moves right where we I mean when you got up and went into the kitchen to get your coffee or tea or whatever else, God was right there. John the Baptist comes with this just heavy theological word for the people. And when did he come? He came in time and space. When these people were ruling in this area, in this region, and these were their names. Such an important point. God can only be blessed and move in the life you actually live. Not the fantasy that you want to exist. He is with you where you are. You've heard it said, be where your feet are. Because that's the only place you really can be. That's where God is. So Luke literally starts the passage that has so much depth by reminding us God moves 
right here. Time and space. Now, if that, didn't get, if that, if that wasn't practical enough, even after John preaches, and we, Luke records this, this deep message of repentance, and he's saying something about Abraham. You're probably asking the same question that other people were going to ask. So, like, what, like, what do I do with that? you got to check this out. I can't wait till you see this. Verse 10 through 14. 10 through 14. In the middle of all the theology, we get this. Verse 10. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share one, uh, share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then the soldiers asked him, what should we do? And he replied, don't exhort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. I talk like that. Like literally, part Part of, part, of, part of what Tess and I do every day, multiple times a day, is to tell our kids to share. Tell the truth. Don't cheat. Don't lie. Don't steal. Like, that's just real practical stuff. So in the middle of a deeply theological message, Luke makes sure to remind us that all of this gets on the ground. Even as he's talking about Abraham and a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and an ancient prophecy about the herald to the Messiah, people want to know, so what do I do? Hey, don't steal. Be honest. Don't lie. Like, that's what you're supposed to do. And make sure you share. If you have more than enough, share with someone who needs, uh, who's in need. That's just real life stuff right there. Very practical. That's how God works. I, got, I want you, you got to see this. So Luke is going to do this throughout his gospel. Do you remember there was another tax collector? He was a short little man. Okay, no one break out in song. Just, just I could just see some of, some of you like getting real antsy. Like, oh, we little man? Okay. Um, check this out. Let's look at it. So Jesus visits this tax collector, Zacchaeus. And guess what happened? Jesus, like, he is theology. He comes to his house. Is it going to be like a seminary lesson? Maybe. But here's how Luke records it. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man is a son of Abraham. Now that last statement from Jesus is freighted with theological meaning. But on the ground, what did Jesus mean? Zacchaeus was going to give back what he stole and give more back from what he stole. That is very practical. If you took something, you need to give it back and give more. Like, that's something I could say to my three-year-old. We can never forget how practical the gospel always gets. Theology always gets worked out on the ground. Now, there's one more part. Let's take a look. One more part. We, we just skipped right over this part because I want you to see how practical in the midst of talking about a winnowing fork, judgment coming, right after that, Luke puts this, verse 19 and 20. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other things he had done, Herod added, to this, uh, added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. 
So in the middle of just preaching some really meaty theological messages to the people, he's also preaching truth to power. He's not showing favoritism. He will, he will preach repentance to the peasant, to the soldier, to the tax collector, and he'll preach it to the man in charge. He's going to call out everybody. You can't marry your brother's wife. You can't, she can't divorce him after you had an affair and then go marry you. That's not allowed. Actually, not just that, there's a bunch of evil stuff you got going on in your house. And he calls it out. And it's so practical, so down to earth, that Herod arrests him and puts him in prison. So, so let me summarize it this way. This is what I love. In the middle of all the theology, in the middle of all of that, all this, like, what sometimes can just seem so abstract, right there in plain sight is some real-life, concrete, earthy stuff right there in the Bible. So here's the way I want to summarize it. In the midst of such a theologically rich passage, which can seem abstract, otherworldly, Luke has woven into the story how all of this theology works itself out in practical, ordinary life. The Bible always gets down into your kitchen and into your bedroom and into your workplace and into your car on Old Farm Road. I've had some experiences lately. Some very slow drivers. I didn't get mad at FD the first time, but I'm just kidding. Let's make some applications. So let's make some quick applications because I think this all has something to say to us right here today. Here it is. Don't imagine God out there in the distance He's right here where we are. We've got to remember this. Because sometimes we are trained to think of God as just so far away from us, so different, that how could He in any way be concerned or involved in just ordinary life, in my pain, in my success? Like, God just can't be there. He's, just, he's, he's in the church building. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's wherever the Bible's being read or people are praying, but he's definitely not like right here in my kitchen when my kid's annoying me. Like this, this can't be where God is. No, God's right there. He's got to be there. Dallas Willard says it this way. I love this quote I read years ago. Here's what Willard said about all this. He said, God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. I'm going to read that again. God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. And if we faithlessly disregard situation after situation, moment after moment, as not being right, we will simply have no place to receive His kingdom into our life. For those situations and moments are our life. Like, you can't wait till just everything's perfect in your life to finally get everything right with God and then feel a certain way. It's not that God just exists in the burning bush moment or when you just feel God, just feel Him like it's just you feel Him in your bones. Like you just, now, I'm not saying God's not there. But even when you wake up and your back's hurting and you're hungry or you just don't want to get up, God's there too. God will never bless you where you're not. He will bless you where you are. He will bless your life, and your life is made up of all those moments. Ordinary moments. And so I'm just going to track with that down into point two. Second application, last one here, because this is going to drive right at the same thing. We're going to say it a few different ways. Never underestimate the eternal significance of your ordinary decisions in your ordinary life. 
It's in these ordinary moments where we actually follow Jesus in real life. Now, can I, can I, let me just say it another way, because I, I want to hit on something I think is the problem here. Let's go to this next one. Sometimes following Jesus involves making a big life decision, right? Like sometimes that's the case. But overall, following Christ happens in the ordinary, ordinary moments of everyday life. And I want to be serious here. Like, I know it's a bit funny because we all have had the experience of being behind a slow driver. But seriously, when I want to get somewhere and I'm behind someone doing five under the speed limit, I'm, I'm angry. Like, have you ever done this? Make, pull your car around to see if is it this person or is it someone else? You ever done that? Yeah. Like, I did that this week and I'm thinking, that's where I follow Jesus. Sometimes I think, well, G following Jesus is about, like, making the big life decision about this or this, but Jesus wants me here. No, like, following Jesus is, what will I do when I'm behind a slow driver? That, like, that's where the rubber hits the road, pun intended. Right? Yeah. John's preaching a profound message, and the people want to know, what do I do? And John says, don't you cheat people. And where were they doing all that cheating? In ordinary moments as they're collecting money. So this is just this massive reminder. Don't keep looking for the big moments, the big aha moments, those big massive God moments in your life. They'll come and God will be with you in those. Do not forget that how you brewed your coffee, what you watched, how your eyes linger, what you click on, what you talk about, who you gossip about, how you complain, how you say thank you, all of it is how we follow Jesus. Right on the ground. Theology always gets on the ground. Okay, so what I'm going to do now, I'm going to give us a next step. And I'm, I'm stealing from a few weeks ago because it just, it, it, it just fits so perfect. So if you did it three weeks ago, you get to do it again. Here it is. Next step. Ask yourself this question. Do it every day. Do it multiple times throughout the day. How is Jesus challenging me today? Jesus is going to press on us. And don't think this means, how is, how is Jesus going to press on your finances? Like, are you going to give a big check to the church this week? Obviously, you need to. Like that's, I mean, like, I feel like there's your answer. But, but it's not that. It's, it's, will I share and be generous with a friend that's in need? It's, will I yell at this person or gossip about him or her. Like, that's where it gets on the ground. And Jesus will challenge us. And he's not going to challenge you in the big moments, which, I mean, only. He will do that. But he's going to challenge you in your ordinary life. So ask, Jesus, how are you challenging me? What do you want? What, what needs to change? And don't look for it in the big, massive moments. Look at them in the small moments. How you parent, how you treat one another, all of that. Because if we see anything in this passage, oh, the theology's there. And don't you get me wrong, we're always going to do the theology. We're always going to deal with the doctrine. We're always going to dig and exposit the Word. But it will always get down to how you drive on Old Farm Road. Let's pray. God, thank you for your Word and how it transforms us. And now the simple prayer is challenge us in ordinary life. We ask that in the name of Christ. Together we say, Amen.